God's Word in 2 Kings, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 through verse 23, says, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell and your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not go to this, past this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Then he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me? Who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold... They were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You should not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Let's pray. O oh Lord, use your word to build, to nourish, to strengthen, so that we might know you, so that we might leave changed, having come face to face with who you are. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In 1940, William Dobby was given command of the British troops in the island of Malta. The island served as a strategic location for launching aircraft 
and yet reinforcements were either a thousand miles to the west in Gibraltar or a thousand miles to the east in Alexandria. So it looked certain to fall. When Dobby arrived, there were about 5,000 troops and only 16 old anti-aircraft guns and four old planes that were in storage. Dobby was a believer, though, and early on he received a telegram from the senior officer of the army that merely said, Deuteronomy 3.22. Dobby looked up the verse that said, Do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God himself will fight for you. And we see that same theme playing out here in these verses. And Dobby lived as a man of faith on the island of Malta. When the bombings would come, he would never go to a shelter. When the raids came, he kept the activities going as normal. And throughout World War II, he held the island of Malta. The famous German commander Rommel would later attribute much of the cause of his ultimate defeat in North Africa to the island of Malta. Well, here this morning we come to two great stories of God's involvement in this world. Stories that show God controls everything from river bottoms to palaces, and everything is under his sway. Stories that remind us that God cares for the impotent and those who seem omnipotent, for servants and for kings. In this, we see two things. We see God's concern in the first seven verses, and then in the last verses, God's laughter. You can see that outline on the bulletin. But we just read last week and looked at Naaman's miraculous healing. And now we return to the seemingly humdrum life of the prophets. They come to Elisha with a pretty basic concern. Look, where our numbers are growing, our house is too small, we need a bigger house. So what do they do? They do something logical. They go to where the trees are. If you go look along any river, along each side of the bank are trees growing. And so they say, Elisha, will you go down with us to the river to chop, chop down trees? And he agrees. And their plan is pretty straightforward. Everyone's going to take an axe. They're going to go down. Each one's going to chop one log. And then if all of them take one, then they'll come back and build a larger dwelling. Now, this is one of those days that surely everyone woke up eager and excited. A group of men going down there, probably laughing and having a good time. That is, until the axe had slipped off and went into the river. Now to grasp the seriousness of the situation, we have to put ourselves in their sandals. They're living at what we call the beginning of the Iron Age, and Israel was not known for being on the cutting edge of such things. Iron was hard to come by in their nation, and even if you got iron, it took a lot of resources to heat it up, to refine it, to mold it, to shape it, to make it so you can turn it into an axe. So this tool was extremely costly. On top of all that, there's no Jake from State Farm to come give you a new one after you pay off the deductible. There's no insurance. There's no hardware store. To make it to equivalent to today, imagine you're going to help someone and you ask your neighbor, hey, can I borrow your new truck that cost about $60,000? And he goes, sure, but I only have liability insurance, not comprehensive, so just be careful. And somehow... You forget to set the brake, and it rolls off a cliff and is totaled. And you think, I don't have $60,000. How in the world am I ever going to pay this off? How am I going to restore this relationship? Well, 
With that in mind, you can understand the prophet who immediately cries out to Elijah, Alas, what will I do? This axe head was borrowed. So Elisha cuts a stick. He asks where it fell in, and he throws the stick in. And the iron floats to the surface. And they pick it up. And then we go, so what should we make of such a story? Now, if you're an unbeliever, you might find that another area to mock the Bible. Floating iron? I mean, come on, even children, even cavemen can tell you iron doesn't float. What are you going to tell me next? That donkeys will talk and people will rise from the dead? Well, yes, but those are other sermons. But there's really no reason to doubt the miraculous unless you've already come in with the idea that God doesn't exist. If God exists and created all things, there's no reason to think that he could not for a time allow some of the laws that he made to be set aside. There's no reason to think that miracles couldn't occur. Now, as believers, we probably don't get our mind in a kink with the miraculous, but perhaps it's kink because we're going, well, what's the application to us? If we drop things in rivers, can we take a stick and throw it in and they'll rise to the surface? You know, some people... Whenever they come to stories like this, they think what we need to do is find an allegory somehow tied to salvation. Dale Davis notes one evangelist that preached, The iron axe head is man's soul. The Jordan stands for judgment. So man's soul is hopelessly lost beneath the waters of judgment. The sticker branch of wood, or sorry, the sticker branch is wood, of course, as is the cross. When the cross of Jesus enters the situation, man's soul is rescued. Nevertheless, faith is necessary. The man had to reach out his hand and take it. Now, well, all the truths that are mentioned in there, that we're sinners, that we're under God's judgment, that Jesus had to come on the cross, and we need to believe are true, I don't think that's what God intended for us to draw from this story. The Bible was written in plain language for us to understand. It's not a code that we have to decipher by drawing a color here and a piece of item here and work our way to understanding God's plan of salvation. Yes, there are times to draw connections and we should do that, but we shouldn't allegorize every single story. Well, if we're not to allegorize the story, then are we to get principles from it? Perhaps we could talk about how it's dangerous to borrow and this borrow is the slave to the lender. Perhaps we could talk about keeping things decently and orderly so that they don't come flying off in life. Perhaps we could talk about how, hey, the whole community went and a church isn't going to function unless we all go down and get our one log together. Well, while those are all good principles, again, I don't think that's what God is trying to teach us here. And I think that allegorizing or the moralizing or the principles, though they can be good at times, are often putting the cart before the horse. Well, God did give us scripture to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that doesn't mean every passage is primarily intended for us to have a life lesson for the day to take from it. The Bible is primarily teaching us about God. It's primarily showing us about God in his character. So yes, all scripture, including this story, is profitable for teaching and training and correction and righteousness. But that does not mean that every story has a direct, okay, today when I go to work, I need to do this mindset to it. 
Rather, the Bible has something much bigger and better than that. The Bible tells us of the incredible, awe-inspiring, never-duplicated God of the universe. It shows us that as we come to know Him, we have meaning and purpose, joy and life. Then, after coming to see and delight in God, that shapes each part of our life. You know, the primary application of each passage is that we should stand in awe of God. So thus, let's back up and ask, what does this story teach us about God? Well, we could discuss how God can bring good out of evil or trials, we might say. We could see how God's power is overall, even the laws of nature that he created. Yet, I think the main thing that God wants to show us in this passage is that he cares for little things and little people. Remember the context of this story. Right before this, and remember as well, there were no chapters and verses when this was originally written. Right before this, you just read of the commanding officer of the enemy's military being healed of leprosy. This is someone important, being healed with one of the most scary diseases in their time. The story after this is going to be of Syria coming in with their armies to try and capture Elisha, the important prophet, and to take Israel captive. And then in between these two monumental stories, or at least we see our monumental, is this no-name prophet losing a piece of iron. And we might say, ah, that's not very important. I doubt the Sumerian Times was covering it in their coverage, yet it mattered to God. God wants us to see he's never too busy and our lives are not insignificant. While there might be things that we say, ain't nobody got time for that, God has time for the smallest of details. You know, it's rather amazing when you consider Jesus' life and all the people he stopped for. Now, while Jesus was on his way to heal a centurion's 12-year-old daughter who was on her deathbed, Jesus stopped because an elderly woman touched his garments. Surely people in the crowds are thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? If this centurion is happy, our life is going to be going great. Could you go heal his daughter? That woman's been sick for years. She's poor. We don't want to say it, but we don't really care about her. We want you to heal the centurion's daughter. And yet Jesus stops. He doesn't care about titles. He heals the elderly woman. He lets her know his care and compassion. God does not look on outward appearances as man looks. God always looks at the heart. Or consider Jesus. What do his disciples do when children and their families want to bring their children to Jesus, they rebuke him. Jesus is important. He doesn't have time for that. And that Jesus rebukes them. He says, Matthew 19, 14, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. While the disciples think there are some people who are unimportant, not significant enough for Jesus, Jesus shows there are none who are too insignificant for me. We could go on and on giving examples of Jesus stopping for the blind and the lame and others that the society had determined were outcast. And yet Jesus stops and touches and talks and heals. You praise God that he cares 
about the nobodies and the things too small for most. You know, the most important application of this passage is worship. To stand in awe of a God who cares about the little details of our life. You know, one of one application we can then draw from that is that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. If you want to honor God, we want to live like Him. So where in your life are people that everyone else deems are insignificant? Maybe it's the secretary, or the gate guards, or the fast food worker, or the people that everyone else goes, ah, haven't even thought about them. God wants us to be His hands, His eyes, His feet, to notice and show the same care and concern for those that we might say are unimportant because everyone is important to him. You may have heard of William Gladstone. He served as the Prime Minister of Great Britain in the late 1800s. He served for 12 years. And you could imagine the Prime Minister, almost the equivalent of our President, having an extremely busy schedule, having so much to do that they can barely squeeze anything else in. And yet one day, the local street cleaner who worked by the Parliament wasn't cleaning the streets. A Christian worker for that area started asking around and he finally found this street cleaner up in a small attic room with the barest of possessions. And this Christian started asking, are you okay? Is there anything we can do? Do you have anyone to come visit you? And he goes, yeah, Mr. Gladstone visited. And he said, well, the Mr. Gladstone? And the street sweeper said, yeah, he sat right there and he read the Bible to me. We might be shocked. Wow, a prime minister would go search out a street sweeper and take time to read the Bible? And yet that's nothing. Because the God of the universe, who could just say, ah, enemies, rebels, I don't want anything to do. He cares about axe heads and all the things that we might go, ah, nobody got time for that. But God does, because He cares. Your God's concerns are, might, are much bigger than we might originally think because God cares for what we deem too little. But while his concerns are bigger than and better than we might have thought, I wonder if you've ever asked, does God laugh? You know, have you ever wondered, will there be laughter in heaven? Or is it going to be just kind of a very serious type of place? I think there's lots of reasons from scripture that we can see that heaven is going to be filled with laughter. And I think that we could say God laughs. But one clear one that we'll examine is Psalm 2. We read it earlier. The kings of the nations, they're trying to break free from God's power. They're trying to rebel. And what does it say? He who sits in the heavens laughs. We see God laughing because their efforts are foolish. And we see such foolish efforts in our next verses, verses 8 through 23. Excuse me. Here we see God's laughter. We come into another time where the Syrians are trying to attack Israel. But Israel has a new weapon. It wasn't found with the greatest research and development. It wasn't figured out through great espionage. Rather, in a unique event, God allows Elisha to know what the Syrians say in their war council. Thus, when the Syrians say, hey, let's go cross at this spot by the Jordan, Elisha then go tells the king of Israel who... Sends troops there to guard it. When he goes, hey, let's cross the desert here. 
The Israelite troops are ready at that point of the desert. And finally, the Syrian king is so upset, he's going, guys, which of you is really a secret spy for Israel? And yet one of their servants, now how he knows this, we're not told, but one of them says, none of us, we're all loyal. It's that Elisha, he knows even the secrets of what you whisper in your bedroom. You know, here we see that Elisha knows because God knows. You're God knowing all things, what we refer to as his omniscience, omni for all and seo for knowledge, his all knowledge is a fascinating and encouraging truth. Consider the extent of God's knowledge, for unlike us, he can see everything in creation. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Psalm 139 tells that God knows of our rising up and our lying down, and that He is everywhere, knowing every word that we'll ever say or speak. When I was younger, we'll leave it open-ended how much younger, I was younger, I would play this silly mind game, this is a true story, and I would think, and then I'd say a word real quick, duck, or boat, and I'd think, I wonder if God knew that one. Well, He did. It was my little mind trying to grasp the omniscience of God. He knows everything even before we'll say it. And yet, the extent of God's knowledge is not just knowing everything mostly. It's knowing everything perfectly, accurately. He's not someone who tries to sound smart. You know people like this. You bring up any subject. Oh, they got a comment on that. They're a know-it-all. He actually knows it all. He's not bluffing. He's not trying to look better than he is. And what do we do when we have these people? We basically finally start asking, well, how do you know? We want evidence. We want good citations, good research. God doesn't do research. He has no peers to evaluate what he has. There's no fact checkers on his accuracy. Isaiah 55, 9 for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's knowledge is amazing not only to its extent, but also in regard to its time. We already hit on this briefly, but let's go a little deeper. God knows everything about the past, the present, and the future. And he knows because he declares the beginning from ancient things not yet done. He can even look in the future and tell you the contingencies of what might happen. In 1 Samuel 23, David is fleeing from King Saul. And then he finally goes to the city. And yet he hears that King Saul is coming to the city. So David prays and he says, If I stay here, will this city hand me over to Saul? Something that could happen in the future. And God says, Yes. So David flees. God has worked out all the ifs, maybes, ands, buts of what could happen. He sees it all. Yet while God perfectly knows the past, the present, and the future, we imperfectly remember the past. We struggle to rightly understand the present. What did I just see? And we can only make educated guesses about the future. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll flip through old photos and I'll go, oh, I forgot we did that. An experience I'd had in my life 
And I could look at the pictures and go, oh yeah, but it was gone. I didn't remember the own things I've done in my own lifetime. So God's knowledge is amazing in its extent. It's amazing in its time. And also, it's amazing in how he acquires it. And think about us. From birth to now, we're studying, being taught, we're observing, we're deducing in so many other ways. God never gains or loses any knowledge. He has it all. You know, there are verses that you go, well, sometimes it talks about God learning. But that's merely language so we might understand what they call anthropomorphic language. Thus, Jesus says right before the Lord's Prayer that God knows what we need before we even pray it. Thus, if we rightly know God's knowledge, then we'll know like the king of Syria, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Now this can lead us to great hope, because there's nothing done to you that has gone unnoticed. God will make all things right. No one is getting away with it. They may think, ah, no one sees, and yet God sees. You know, that's good, though, because God is good. I'm sure we all have things that we hope, oh, I hope no one ever finds that out. If certain people find this out about me, they'll tease me, they'll mock me, they'll tell others, and people will shun me. And yet God knows all of those things. And He still welcomed you. He still forgave you. He still wanted to call you daughter and son. If Satan wants you to keep those things in the dark, he says, if anyone finds out, they'll disown you. And yet God knows it all. And he says, bring it to the light. Bring it to the light. Because I already know. And confess it to others so that you can have joy and freedom. Well, back in 2 Kings 6, This king is learning of God's omniscience that's being shown to Elisha. And so he goes, look, we need to capture Elisha. So he sends out, he goes, where where is Elisha staying? And he figures out he's in this town named Dothan, about 10 miles away from the capital, Samaria. So the king sends a massive army who sneaks up at night and surrounds the city. Now at this point, you just have to pause and go, what is the king of Syria thinking? Elisha has been able to know... Every single move, is he not going to know if you come at nighttime? Will the cover of darkness make up for the fact that you couldn't keep a secret when you were hundreds of miles away? God sits in the heavens and laughs. You may have heard of Cale Sanderson. He was a freestyle wrestler. He wrestled at Iowa State University from 1999 to 2002. While he wrestled, he won 159 times, and he lost zero. Zero losses in four years of college competition. Imagine Cal Sanderson walking into the ring, and a three-year-old walks in on the other side. Cal would just sit there and laugh. And we would all laugh and then cringe as we watched the next half a second. There's no competition. I mean, he's going to have him down before the kid can even say, Hi. God looks at all our efforts to undo what he wants, 
And he just laughs. <laughs> You're three years old. I'm 159 and zero. No one's going to defeat me. There's no hope. And so what happens? Well, the next morning, the servant wakes up and he looks out and he sees them on Elisha. Ooh, look outside. He's scared. And Elisha responds, do not fear. Now the point is not, and sometimes people think this, the point is not that we should never fear anything. Amos 3.8 asks, the lion has roared, who will not fear? If you go down to the Fort Worth Zoo and you're walking around and you turn a quarter and you see a lion, and a lion has escaped from a cage and it roars, you're not trusting in God to go, here kitty kitty, you're a fool. You should fear and you should, as cautiously as you can, get away from there. There are times to fear. Fear can be a healthy response to real danger. But fear is a wrong response if you don't take everything into consideration. And so what does Elisha tell him? He tells him not to fear because greater are the ones with us than the ones with them. I think he has in mind Deuteronomy 20 verses 1 through 4. It says, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for the battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or be in panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. And so Elisha prays that God would open the eyes of his servants. And when he does, the servant sees the hills surrounded with chariots and horses of fire. If you've been going through this series with us, you'll know in 2 Kings 2, we read about these before. When Elijah was taken up to heaven there, the chariots of horses of fire came and led him off. Now, as with miracles, some will immediately scoff at an invisible angelic realm. They live off what I can see, taste, touch, smell, you know, our senses, what we can do experiments on, what we can test and study. And yet there is nothing new under the sun. Even in Jesus' day, a religious group called the Sadducees denied the resurrection, angels, and spirits. Just like miracles, there's no reason to doubt the reality of angels because God tells us they are true. You know, our lack of ability to understand something doesn't make it not true. Even in this story, we are seeing that the presence of angelic beings is not known unless God opens our eyes to see them. You know, the Bible never makes an argument for God, never makes an argument for the existence of angels. It also never makes an argument for the existence of dirt. It's there. It's real. We don't have to argue for it because it's reality. And thus the Bible over and over just talks about angels and how they're working. Thus in Daniel 10, we read of an angelic being coming to Daniel and saying, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, who was a demonic being, not an actual prince serving in Persia, withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, him being an angelic being, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. 
and the New Testament we read in June 9. But when the archangel Michael, the same one just referenced in Daniel 10, when he was contending with the devil. Now this is interesting. I actually read this this morning in a book. When you think of the opposite of God, you should not think of Satan. Because God is eternal. He has no equal. When you think of the opposite of the devil, you should think of Michael. They are opposite beings. Both angels, but one who still serves God and one who is not. There is no opposite to God. There is no eternal duality in which God is fighting the forces of evil and we're just hoping that he wins. God rules over all. And his angelic beings like Michael fight against the devil. Thus, Revelation 12, 7 declaring a future war. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. Angelic realities exist even today. For Paul writes, Ephesians 6, 10-11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The armor that is described then goes on and it shows us not how to exercise demonic forces through exorcisms or how we work spells, but rather it shows us through faith, through prayer, through God's word, through the power of the cross, we fight the demonic beings. And there are many other important things we could say about angels, but we should quickly say we're never to worship them. We're never to fear them. Yes, we're not to be deceived into thinking they're inactive, but their activity is not one in which we need to fear. For as with this verse, we're told in 1 John, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world or any of his minions. And yet, we are to be always living for the Lord because when we do, we may even serve angels. Hebrews 13.2 exhorts us, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And so here, in our passage, 2 Kings 6, we are seeing this angelic realm protecting Elisha. And Elisha has prayed for sight for his servant, and now he asks for blindness for the Syrians. Well, God answers his prayer. Elisha then leads them down to the capital of Samaria, and then they he prays and their eyes are open again. Over and over we see that Elisha prays because Elisha doesn't have the power. God does. Elisha is merely a tool that God is using. Now you can imagine quite the stir. Here comes this dust in the distance. The dust comes closer and that's the Syrian army led into our own capital by the prophet Elisha. The king of Israel is giddy over himself, over what to do. I mean, he asked twice. He's like stuttering. Can I destroy them all now? And yet Elisha says no. Before even a single Geneva convention was held, God instructed us how to fight, how to care, how to serve him even in the midst of war. Syria was not one of the nations that they were to devote to destruction. So rather than taking these prisoners of war and killing them, he was to bless them. And so, 
What does he do? He breaks out not the saltines. He breaks out a feast. And he feeds them and they go back and that king will never come attack Israel again. The future Syrian kings will renew their attacks. Well, Dell Davis writes, In the 1970s, many Christians in China were worshipping, as they still do in house churches. Their meeting places were constantly being changed in order to avoid crackdowns. Leaders would be arrested and sent to labor camps. In one particular meeting, those present had a very strong sense of Christ's love and the Spirit's presence. At the end of the meeting, five visitors stood and announced they'd been sent to make a rest. Now they, too, wanted to believe. Your God is still at work. It is still true that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So we don't need to fear. Or as Psalm 125, 2 says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth, and forevermore. Now this is not a promise that you'll never have any harm in your life. This is never a promise that Christians won't ever be arrested or even put to death. You know, there was another time when people came to arrest one by night. And what did he say? Well, Peter tried to defend him. Well, I'll defend you. And Peter hacked off an ear. And then after Jesus healed his ear, the man's ear, he said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? You know, the chariots that protected Elisha would look like a small troop compared to what Christ could have called down. Or when Jesus was before Pilate, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But an instant Jesus could have called more forces than we've ever known. And he could have been saved. And yet Jesus willingly allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be condemned and tried, falsely accused and put to death. Why? Because he wanted us to know that he cares about axe handles. And he cares about people who want to remove our head with an axe. He is there to protect us. And the way he has to protect us ultimately is to defeat sin that causes all of this harm in the first place. And so Jesus died taking our sin and rising again so that we can know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So we can live with confidence, with hope, not in fear. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh Lord, give us hope. Sometimes we look out and we see troops lining up at borders. We see policies crafted that are against your word. We see people who seem to hate us and we can fear, we can cringe. Lord, help us not to be naive, but help us in our lives to trust you. Whatever may come, may we know that you are greater than anything. That you, who have overcome the world, will be with us, even to the end. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.